Well, good morning, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to, to be here. It's the first time I've been uh, to your church. I enjoyed spending some time with Pastor Sexton this past week at Summer Sanctus Camp and getting to know him a bit better. We've met before, but we, we had a great week together. And so, uh, again, thank you so much for the invitation. Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a new day, for a new mercy, for a new start, for resurrections. And we thank you for your word that feeds us and provides for us, instructs us and protects us. We pray today as we think through this subject of growth and maturity that you would grant us insight into ourselves and into our circumstances and how we might apply your word to us, to our families, to our children. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased with what you see in us as we seek to become like Christ, and as you and the Holy Spirit are at work in us to accomplish that. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13.11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And in 1 Corinthians 14.20, he writes, Brethren, do not Be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So the theme of this conference, I was asked to speak on the subject of maturity. And the Bible, so the Bible, for example, says in Matthew 5, 48, uh, that we are to be perfect in everything, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so the perfect person in the Bible, in fact, we'll see that word perfect used. We can usually just substitute the word mature there, uh, and and that would give us uh, the same kind of understanding that we're, we're seeking here. It means to be grown up or to be complete. The person who has reached their full purpose, uh, their full potential would be the mature person. And of course, Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He is the image of perfection and maturity, and, and the Holy Spirit is at work in us to do what? To conform us to the image of His Son, to bring us to the place that we are like Christ. And while this perfection in us will not be completed in this life, it ultimately will be completed, the process of maturation has begun in this life. We're not waiting to get to heaven. We're not postponing this. But as soon as God begins a work in us, he also begins to complete that work and to move us day by day, moment by moment, through all the circumstances of life to teach us, to shape us, to discipline us, and bring us to that place of maturity. And so it matters what we're doing today. What we're putting in the stream or the river today is going to flow downstream and have big impact not only on our lives, but on the lives of our families, our children's children, our church, our world, in fact. And so, the question that comes up is, do we really have to grow up? Um, How often do we hear someone say, as usually as an excuse when something hasn't gone well, well, I'm not perfect. What if instead we said something like, well, I'm immature. We don't quite want to, somehow saying I'm not perfect seems like a good excuse, but just saying I'm immature doesn't. It, uh, 
we would be a little bit embarrassed to say that. If, if I say that I'm immature or if I say that you're immature, you don't take that as a compliment. We understand that to be said, when someone says that you're mature, that that is a compliment. That's a good thing. And so since we are not perfect, since we are not completely mature, uh, we certainly have no time to waste. We have a lot to do. Uh, I will have my 63rd birthday here in a few weeks, and, and what I realize is I'm not mature. I'm not there yet. I still have a ways to go. There's not a point we get to where we say we can stop. We, we still have things to do day by day, and... Um, you know, a gardener once asked, or a man asked his gardener to plant a tree, and the gardener objected that the tree was a very slow-growing tree and would take a hundred years to mature. And he simply said, "Well, then we don't have any time to lose. Let's plant it this afternoon. Let's get going." So wherever you are, uh, that is is where we begin. Maturity is not automatic. It's not simply a matter of living long enough, though there are certain aspects of maturity, physical growth. Uh, that just require a number of years of experience and time. So time is a factor, but it's not the only factor, and it's certainly not automatic. We all know immature adults. We can grow old without maturing. Real maturity maintains, though, an enthusiasm for life. Uh, Sin distorted the maturation process. I was thinking about this. Unfallen man... Adam was created, in some senses, he was created as a grown man, uh, and Eve as a grown woman, but they still had maturing to do, still had progress to make, still had a garden to tend, still had wisdom to gain. There was still growth to take place, but of course, sin distorted the maturation process, Unfall, uh, and, and, and yet... Um, and so, but what we're going to be talking about today is not that, but talking about post-fall immaturity. Sin twisted all that. Sin's now made this more complicated. Because the real mature person, it's interesting, that is not only what we think of, say, an older person who's wise and, and uh, careful and, and has great wisdom to share with others, but in a biblical sense, real maturity is also childlike. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that we have to become like children to enter the kingdom? We don't lose our enthusiasm. What we tend to do is grow old and dull. And real Christian maturity, real Christ-likeness, requires that we not only grow in wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but also that we maintain that childlike faith and enthusiasm along the way. That would be the perfectly mature man. I believe Adam would be just as excited you know, without sin as he, you know, if he, after he'd lived 500 years, every day would be a thrill. Every day would be a great joy. And uh, so, for example, G.K. Chesterton writes about this. He says, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things replicated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And a grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. Uh, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Uh, 
But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. And so, I don't want us to confuse age and maturity. Being old or older doesn't make us more mature. Maturity is something a bit different. So as we grow older, as we move through life, we should be gaining some wisdom. We should be gaining some maturity. And so typically, older people would show more maturity than younger people. But those are not necessarily the same thing, is my point here. And so, since there is no guarantee of maturity, we're going to have to learn from God how to get there. And so the Bible provides the blueprint and the roadmap. And I always like to start with any subject with an aerial view, a flyover, the big picture. That's pretty much what this talk is about in regard to the question of maturity. Uh, we need to see that bigger picture, the ideal. What is the perfect man? What is the goal? What are, what are we aiming at and what are we moving toward? Few of us, if any, have ideal circumstances. Uh, so we're always, uh, so nevertheless, the ideal, the perfect, is the goal. And as Christians, uh, as we see that goal in, in front of us, sometimes it seems really high, really out of reach. And, uh, but we are called to pedal faster, to reach higher uh, each generation. This is what, uh, so as Christians, you're, uh, in order to do that, God takes us where we are. Every one of us start at a different place. When people join the church, they come in all kinds of conditions, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of knowledge or experiences, liabilities, assets. And sometimes people say something like, well, will the church accept me the way I am? Does God accept me the way I am? And for many, that becomes an excuse. I just want to be accepted the way I am. But the right answer is, yes, we accept you the way you are, but we're not going to let you stay the way you are. God is not going to let us stay the way we are. He'll take us in the worst of conditions, and then he goes to work to improve us, to change us, to shape us, to make us better than what we were. And so that's the work of the church. That's the work of God. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me, will complete it in, uh, until the day of Jesus Christ. So no matter what circumstances you're under, God is above those circumstances, and by His grace and power, He will work in you. He will work through the circumstances of your life to shape you, to change you. And that's what sanctification is. That's what uh, maturity in Christ is about. You have the opportunity to change the world, especially by providing a platform for the next generation to be able to stand on on your shoulders and reach higher. I, uh, over the years, dealt with many people in this situation, but oftentimes we're talking to someone who's had some kind of major, what we think of as a tragic situation come up in their life. 
uh, life-changing kind of thing, something that's turned their world upside down. And we'll talk later a, a bit about this, but how we respond to those circumstances makes all the difference. So we can wallow in the circumstance, we can become bitter and angry, or we can recognize that God is teaching me, training me, showing me this painful thing so that I don't repeat it, so that I don't pass it on to the next generation. So sometimes you have a young person who's raised in a, in a family that's messed up, that's got a lot of problems, that's broken. And by the way, we're all broken, right? That's what the church is, hospital for broken people. It just we're broken in different ways. And so the question is, what are you going to do with that? You're going to wallow in it? Is that who you're going to, is that's going to define you? Or is this going to become the thing that God uses in your life to start to change you, to move you, so that your children and your children's children don't face those same kinds of things? And so maturity is not just limited to you. It's not just limited to your generation. But it's essential that you make progress, that you grow, that you mature, so that your children and your children's children can build on that. They start off better than you started off. Wherever you start, you can't, can't raise a family for 20 or more years and not learn a lot of things and not grow. And so I want my children to do better than I did. I want them to improve on how we did things to step up and to step out and to continue that maturity process. All right, so people will speak sometimes of being, uh, you'll hear a young person say this sometimes, I'm mature for my age. But before we can begin to discuss maturity, and we'll come back to that question of you know, how can you be mature for your age, we need a definition of maturity. One person described maturity this way, the ability to stick with a job until it's finished, the ability to do a job without being supervised, the ability to carry money without spending it, and the ability to bear an injustice without wanting to get even. And I think these are just maybe an example of the fruit of maturity. Some We could go on really and expand that kind of thing. But the Bible sets before us a number of passages that speak to this and I want to mention just a few of those right here. And of course, as we know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. And by, I think the word wisdom, I'm not saying this literally, but I think if you, every time you read the word wisdom or most of the time you could substitute the word maturity, biblical maturity. So if you said the beginning of wisdom is, is, is the fear of the Lord or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you could also say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of maturity. Because wisdom is the goal. Wisdom is what we're after. Uh, Psalm 18, um, uh, I that, yeah, starting in verse 31, For who is, the, who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. So the starting place is to recognize this isn't me pulling myself up by my bootstraps to go out and make myself into a certain kind of man. But this is God's work. I'm a Christian. I'm going to start out under, uh, bowed before him and recognizing that if this is going to get done, it's a supernatural work. I don't know about you, but I know I'm prone to forget that. I'm prone to think I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm smart enough, strong enough, and wise enough. And I forget to rely upon the Lord, to go to him and say, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit. Uh, I need 
I need your word. I need uh, help. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to do something in me that I cannot do for myself. And I think it's easy uh, to forget that and to go through our day and go through our lives not relying upon God. We are not called to be independent. We, as Americans especially, I think, think being an independent person is, is a virtue. But if you're independent of God, if you're not relying on Him in a self-conscious way, you cannot be moving toward Christ-likeness. Did Jesus rely upon His Father? Constantly, right? Well, how are we going to become like Christ if we somehow think we're by ourselves and doing this on our own, in our own strength? Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. This is God's work. Um, Ephesians 4, 11-15, And He Himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So the church has been given. It's a gift of Jesus to you and to me. And He puts us in the church and He gives us the apostles and prophets, which, where do we have the apostles and prophets? Do we still have apostles and prophets? We have the Bible, right? Which is a record of the apostles and prophets. So we do have the apostles and the prophets, and then we have pastors and teachers and evangelists, who I think are missionaries, uh, who then bring the Word of God to us. So we have, we've been given that, we've been put in the church. Why did God do that? Why did He have the church? Why does He put us in the church? Why does He give us those uh, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints. Continue. For the building up or edifying of the body of Christ. There's the idea of growth. Until we all come to the unity of faith, of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to a mature man. That's why the church exists. It's here to make you like Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So we're not out there just getting kicked around by the world and we're tuning in to see what Oprah has to say and Dr. Phil and whoever else to direct our lives. We have the living and abiding, everlasting Word of God to build our lives on. It is fully sufficient to make a man perfect for every good work. Now, if the Scriptures, which are God-inspired, God-breathed, are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, in other words, the Bible tells me what road to be on, tells me where I got off the road, tells me how to get back on the road, tells me how to stay on the road, and if it is sufficient to make me perfect for every good work, what else do I need? That's, that's it. I don't need the other stuff. I need that. And that's when God calls us, He puts us with His people, He puts us in His church. Back to our passage in Ephesians 4. To no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, every popular thing that comes along by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up 
in all things into him who is the head, Christ. He is the goal. He is the mature man. He is the standard. And that's what the church is doing in our lives. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him, Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man perfect, mature in Christ Jesus. Paul said, that's my goal. That's why I'm here. That's why we're doing what we're doing, is this goal of maturity. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, leave the discussion of the elementary principles, of, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on. Let's stop being babies. We'll, we'll look more at this Hebrews passage later. Uh, stop being babies and let's grow up and move to perfection. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, true maturity is the work of God in making us all to be like Jesus Christ, who is the perfect man. Now, my, my definition of immaturity is two two-year-olds in a room with one toy. They think the whole world revolves around them and what they want, and selfishness, then, is at the very heart of immaturity. The epitome of maturity is what? Or who? Jesus Christ. He was filled with wisdom. He loved God and his neighbor. He sacrificed himself for others. He was selfless. So I think those two concepts help when we're talking about this. Immaturity is selfishness. Maturity is selflessness. Sacrifice, giving. And by the way, in the Bible, sacrifice and giving are really synonymous with love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This idea of giving of yourself Sacrificing yourself. That's what it means to love God and love your neighbor. And so the mature person uh, loves God and neighbor. This is the ultimate goal. Those are the, what Jesus said, that these are the two greatest commandments. We could summarize all of the Bible, the whole law, in those two commandments. And so if we rephrase that or paraphrase that a bit, the greatest commandments are what? Sacrifice yourself to God and sacrifice yourself to your neighbors. Give yourself. That's maturity. That's someone who's far-sighted. For example, how does that benefit a man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? He who loves his wife loves himself. If you really want to do what's best for you, then die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Go to him, and then he'll send you back to your wife and your kids and your husband and your neighbors and, and teach you how to really love them. And then as, the, as a result, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a glorious marriage and a glorious family and, and uh, all these things are going to begin to change because you're not driven by selfishness. You're driven by giving. That's the picture of maturity. 
Now, parents, uh, you are required in Scripture to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to teach them to follow Jesus, to love Jesus. This means the first great task confronting parents today is to bring their children up within, in the covenant and in such a way that their children feel a lifelong loyalty to that covenant, to that relationship with God and His people. And so we, we not only want to see our children mature, we not only see ourselves mature, but we're also at work to see the kingdom of God mature. Again, think of the kingdom like the leaven that starts out and it grows and expands until it fills the earth. We're part of that. We are that leaven. And as we grow, as our children grow, as our families grow in Christ, we fill the earth and the kingdom grows and the kingdom matures. And so this task, uh, this task addresses the question of whether our children will be Christians after us and whether they'll bring up their children in the faith. And this is your work every single day. If you have children, everything else you do, your career, the laundry, meals, worship, anything else you can think of, should be in service of this goal, bringing them to, to Christ-like maturity. That's what all the rest of it's about. It's easy to lose sight, right, to get busy and caught up in all the various other things, for those things to become the object rather than the means of this object of, of bringing everyone in the family to maturity in Christ. And children, according to the fifth commandment, are required to honor their father and mother as they seek to do this. Note that the fifth commandment is part of the ten commandments, and therefore it is central to society in general. If we want a mature society, if we want a godly society, which, by the way, wasn't that the first goal for Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Godly seed. Malachi says, right? God, God said, I made you two one so that you'd give me godly offspring, mature offspring, to fill the earth with more God-image-bearing, image God-glorifiers. That was the original goal. And the gospel says, this, look, sin wrecked all that, but now the gospel is dealing with the sin issue so that we can get back to that, this communion of love, this place where we can fill the earth with mature, godly seed. And so the uh, one element of honoring father and mother is this, obey, uh, obey and love their standards. Jesus did what with his father? He did the will of his heavenly father. That was his job. That was his goal as a son, to glorify his father, to do what his father said, to be a reflection of that, to deny himself and to, to glorify his father. Now, if you're to grow and mature and be perfected as godly men and women, that process, if it's going to happen, has to happen in the right context. So, at different stages of our life, different stages of our growth and maturity, God's put us in different places. If you're a baby, you're in one place. If you're a little kid or a young teenager or an older teenager or a young adult, or an old, at every stage of life, God puts us in different places and our responsibilities and duties change along the way. And if I try to do an end run around those or ignore those or not recognize where God's put me right now, 
and what I'm to do today. You know, think of a guy who gets a job, he's right out of school, and he gets a job working for a company, but he thinks he knows it all. And he starts telling the boss how to, how to run things or the owner. He's not going to last very long, is he? He's out of place. Could he be right? Maybe. But that's not his place. And if he does that, he's going to be unemployed pretty soon. And he can go talk to himself about how things ought to be done. So recognizing if you're wherever God has put you right now, the first thing you need to ask is, what does God require of me today? So that later, if I've done what I need to do today, if I'm faithful in the little things today that he's called me to, he is going to then open up new opportunities for me to serve in bigger ways. But I have to be faithful today in what he's called me to today. And that's, uh, children, I'm especially speaking to you, if you're under your parents, that is what he's called you to right now. Someday you'll be the grown-up. Someday you'll be the mom or the dad. Someday you'll be the boss. But before you can be a good mom or a good dad or a good boss or a good husband or a good wife, you've got to be a good kid first. You've got to do what God's called you to do today in order to get to where he wants you to be later. And so... Uh, just as plants need proper soil, water, and sunshine to reach maturity and be fruitful, the, the ideal place, of course, is a godly home, a godly church. No one can mature in isolation. So God puts us in a family. He puts us in, in a church, which is a family. So we can think of a covenant in several ways, but for today I want us to consider it in two ways. When we think about a covenant household or a church being a covenant, a covenant being uh, first a government. Uh, there are laws that govern those who are in the covenant, and these should be based, of course, on God's Word. The household was designed by God to do what? To instruct children, to provide discipline, among other things. Doctrine and discipline. To provide a greenhouse. What are greenhouses for? To take tender young plants and give them a safe place where they can grow and mature. Why? Why do we want plants to grow and mature? So at some point, we can move them out of the greenhouse and put them in a place where they can bear fruit. So that's what your family's for. That's the goal. That's uh, what's taking place in this covenant. It provides protection uh, and should lead to a to ultimately godly self-government. So, again, this is where we grow and mature. A second, second, a covenant is a relationship. There are different positions, as I mentioned earlier, held in the covenant and governed by God. And so godliness requires that we know our position and act accordingly. By the way, um, let's talk, this is just a little footnote or an aside. I just jotted a note here that I'm thinking about. As we move through life, as we look at families or marriages or, or kids, uh, when we think, in the, the Bible is simple in this sense. There are covenant blessings and covenant curses. When we do what God says to do, when we are disciplined, when we follow him, when we follow Jesus, isn't that what we all signed up for? I want to follow Jesus all the days of my life. I love Jesus. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I'll take up my cross and follow you. That's, that's fundamentally what a Christian is. And then the hard part starts, actually listening and following and obeying and denying ourselves 
That's the hard part. And, and so, um, but the Bible is simple in this sense. If we do that, it, it's not just obedience. Let me back up. Behind obedience is always faith. Do you believe God? Wasn't that the fundamental question in the garden? Has God said, well, wait a minute, I think I'll decide for myself. And there's where all the trouble began. Had Adam and Eve just listened to God? Had they believed God? What happens when you believe God? You then obey God. Obedience is, is the product of faith, not the cause of faith. If we believe what God, Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so this is the evidence of faith, is obedience. When we don't obey God, what happens? What does God say? You will surely die. Die is, death is not, we don't cease to exist, that's not death. We, we're cut off, we're separated from something. Separated from God, in the case of physical death, we're separated from one another. Because our, our bodies are our medium for communication. At least temporarily we're cut off, separated, but we didn't cease to exist. So some kind of death, some kind of separation. So what did, what did Adam and Eve do after sin entered? They hid. They were separated. Your sins have hid your face from God. And that needed to be restored. So judgment comes when we hear about the judgment of God for, diso- for a lack of faith, not believing God, not doing what God says, and in effect God says, okay, have it your way. Let's see how this works out. So every place you see a mess in your life, there's some sin somewhere, either yours or somebody else's or a combination of yours and other people's. You're not doing what God said to do. And so judgment usually comes in the form of the consequences of us not doing what he called us to do, not following him, not growing and maturing, but remaining selfish and self-centered. Now, important point here, you're never alone. You're part of the covenant bodies that you're members of, your family, your church, and even the state. And this means that all of your thoughts... All of your words and behavior affect those who are in covenant with you or who will be in covenant with you. So some of you here, not married yet, don't have children. Someday you might. and What you're doing today is going to impact them. So you better be busy growing now so that you're ready for that. Uh, do you, uh, so, for example... First uh, Corinthians six eighteen through twenty. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so you are always connected. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. God put you in a family. God put you in a church. And so you're also, by the way, connected to the past and connected to the future. You're part of that great river that runs, uh, that, that has an upstream and a downstream, and your immaturity or maturity will affect everyone negatively or positively, particularly downstream. As Pastor Steve Jeffrey said uh, last week at camp, no one ever drifted into godliness, and I, I thought, well, I could also put the word maturity, which is the same thing. No one ever drifted into maturity. It doesn't just happen. 
Um, so children and parents, uh, just a, another kind of aside here, want the same things usually. They want health and prosperity and success. The problem is you sometimes disagree over how to achieve these things. And um, But God has put you together, and this is an important point, parents, for you. Because this whole subject of maturity is we have to remember, I'm, I'm not just... It would be one thing if I were just talking to young people or children about their need for maturity. But grown-ups, as I said at the beginning, we're children too. We need to be growing. And parents, I think it's important for you to remember that God is still working to mature you, usually through your children. He's te- Every time one of your children messes up or sins or has a problem and you're dealing with that, God is also dealing with you. And instead of, instead of just being concerned that your children learn whatever lesson they need to learn, this is an opportunity for you to say, what do I need to be learning? How can I do this better? How can I parent better? How can I glorify God better? How, can I, how could I have been more Christ-like in this? God's still at work in you. So don't forget that important point. Your obligation is to figure out how to honor God uh, then by honoring uh, either, you know, whatever your obligations are in this relationship, whether it's a parent or a child. If you're a young person, you're headed toward the finish line where you'll be transitioning to have your own covenant household, so don't bolt from God's calling now. Ecclesiastes speaks, for example, of young people following their hearts or their desires, but it does so with this warning. God's not a killjoy. God wants you to have a lot of fun in life. He just lavishes us with all kinds of good gifts, good food, good sights, good fun things to do, friends, all those. That's, that's good. And he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, there are consequences to all the decisions you're going to be making. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. They're passing away. So the, go ahead and enjoy your youth, but understand that the decisions you make, and we'll talk later about, for example, the friends you have or don't have, uh, all those things you do now are going to bear fruit very soon and are going to impact your life for a long time, and a lot of other people's. Let no one, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise your youth, but be an example, young people, to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. There's the standard. The Proverbs are a contrast. I usually said it this way. It's, it's the language of Proverbs. If you read through the Proverbs, you could make two lists. Here's a list of what foolish people do, what fools do, and here's a list of what wise people do. If you're looking for a great home study, worship with your family, that's a good one. We're going to read through the Proverbs, and we're just going to literally make a list of what fools do and what wise people do. And as you read that, you're supposed to say, which one am I? Where do I fall in this list? So Proverbs, but you could also substitute mature and immature, fool, immature, wise, mature. Here's a list of what immature people do. Here's a list of what mature people do. 
Proverbs 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction and perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom or maturity, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to, a young, uh, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and its enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise maturity. Part of maturity is, is self, of godly maturity, is self-awareness. And so I want to kind of spend the last part of this opening talk talking about an element of maturity that I don't think just kind of jumps out immediately, but is really foundational, and that is the beauty and necessity of humility. Humility, if you think about it, if you think about people you know, don't you find humility attractive? When you see humility in someone, honest humility, and doesn't arrogance produce the opposite reaction in you? You find it ugly and repulsive when you see it? You ever find yourself, if somebody's acting in an arrogant way, cocky, you kind of want to see them trip, you know, maybe out on the playing field or whatever, just to be humbled, just to remind them that they're human. Humility is always attractive, and if you want the fastest path to show your parents, young people, that you are wise and mature, you want to convince them you're grown up, this is where it starts. You have to be humble. It's the particular sin of youth. Um, there's, there's a connection uh, also in the Bible. Then, well, let's see. Most, most maturity is accomplished uh, through experience, and that experience is often in the form of learning how not to do something. And so we might say wisdom is applied knowledge. It's not just what we know, but how we know it, how well we know it how that knowledge stands in relationship to the other things we know. But notice that in the passage in James that we read earlier, that James says that gaining of wisdom will require patience. If a person's to be brought to maturity, it takes time. And this is why I find, for example, sometimes you know, I'll see young people who are really bright, really smart. They're uh, sometimes super smart but not always wise. It's possible to have a really high IQ and still be a fool, to not be mature, to not be godly, to miss the point. Being smart is a gift, uh, but now you have to do something with that gift. They come to trust their own abilities and strengths rather than their weaknesses. I often say about some really smart young people I know, what they need is a few more failures and a few less successes. Because in those failures, God teaches us to trust Him, to rely upon Him, to not rely upon ourselves. Isn't that what God did with, with uh, Paul and his thorn in the flesh? Isn't that what God did with David uh, before Goliath? Uh, he had to say, the battle is the Lord's. How is this teenage boy, which is what David was, remember the armor wouldn't even fit him. We're going to talk about him in more detail. Uh, how was he going to take down this giant? The battle is the Lord's. He had to rely upon the Lord, not himself. 
Uh, he could have been, you know, that cocky teenager, but he wasn't. God tells us, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, my, in the case of Paul's thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in the need, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, turns out the way up is down. The way down is up. A lot of paradoxes in the Bible that way. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom or maturity. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And so the Bible gives us this connection between humility and maturity. And so let's, let's pray. We'll take a break and uh, come back and continue. Father, we thank you for your word. It tells us the truth about you and about us. And we agree. We agree that we are needy, that we are sinful, that we are foolish. And that we are in need of your help and your strength, your direction, your discipline. That you and your wisdom have put us in families and churches and connected us to other people and made us part of something that's bigger than us. Teach us, Lord, to be humble, to recognize our place, to learn the lessons that you have for us to learn, to be humble and ready to move forward at your call and to grow and mature in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.